0: Whenever skies look gray to me And troubles begin to brew Whenever the winter winds become too strong I concentrate on you
1: Hello. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. In the background, you are listening to the vocalizations of Nellie McKay, who happens to be our guest today on Media Roots Radio. Nellie and I linked up last year, because of many overlapping political interests we shared, our passion for anti-war especially. Being in a totally isolated musical bubble of experimental electronic music and academic wankery, I wasn't personally familiar with your body of work before we started talking. And when I first had the opportunity to see you perform in Oakland, I was completely blown away, not just by how politically charged your music was, but also just how incredible of a performer you are. Breathtaking vocals, uh, amazing ukulele and keyboard performance. I can't remember the last time I had seen a show inside of a nightclub where virtually the entire audience was fully engaged with your performance, where they were singing along with your lyrics. Um, you're also an actress um, who starred in plays. that require not just musical performances, but also some ad-libbing as well, like in the recent Ethan Cohen uh, play that you starred in called A Play is a Poem. It's a really rare thing to meet such a brilliant performer and artist who is also this deeply engaged in radical politics. And... I thought you would be the perfect guest to bring on Media Roots Radio, so welcome to the podcast, Nelly. Thank you for coming on.
0: Oh, well, thank you, Robbie, for having me. I love your show. I love what you do.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. So I'm really glad we, we finally had a chance to link up like this officially on Media Roots Radio. But first, I wanted to ask you how you became politically awoken, or as the kids say these days, woke. <laughs> was it a gradual process for you? Was it a slow evolution? Or was there some kind of, perhaps some kind of catalyzing event in your life that led you in that direction?
0: Well, when I was a kid, I remember uh, we had a little 10-inch black and white TV. And um, uh, I remember it was election night, 1988. And my mother looked unhappy. And I thought, oh no, mom looks unhappy what I do, and and she said, um, oh, I I hoped Dukakis would have won, and I said why, and she said, well, he's a Democrat, and uh, generally speaking, uh, Republicans are more for the rich, and Democrats are more for the people, and um, ha! <laughs> but for a long time I thought that, <laughs> you know, but uh, I remember then the next election I was even more conscious, and you I was in fifth grade, and every kid in the class. You know, our teacher asked, who would you vote for if if you had a vote this election? And, uh, you know, every kid in the class uh, was on assistance and uh, welfare. And it was mostly black and Hispanic class. And pretty um, much and, everyone said, you know, Clinton, Bill Clinton. And there's this little white boy. And he raised his hand and he said, I like Ross Perot. And we all got so mad at him. Boo, and, you know, he's stupid. And of course, Bill Clinton got in and he cut everyone's benefits. He took food stamps away from those little kids. But so many of those kids who are now adults maybe don't know that. I mean, their parents maybe don't. It was this big victory, a Democrat after 12 years of the GOP. And uh, it wasn't a victory, it, you know. It was the silent killer. Um, And, uh, but, you know, for a long time, I thought that was the side of right, you know, and even having having no bread, I got their book about Socks the Cat. (laughs) 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 I mean, you know, and then you buy into the whole feminism thing. You think, uh, you know, that the all the slogans, the future is female. I have a signed picture of Shirley Chisholm. I had a great book on her by Susan Brown Miller. I thought if, you know, someone, people who aren't white women, you know, all the people who have been, uh, uh, shut out if they were in power, the world would be better, and then you realize it's just another mask. But it's taken such a long time, Robbie. I feel so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you very unself-righteous now because I, I just—not in terms of the actual ethics of the thing, but in terms of strategy—when you put your your vote and your what power you have behind a, a public figure, humans are corruptible.
1: What you're describing sounds kind of like an evolution where you, because even on your Wikipedia page, um, it says you are a self-identified feminist, but it sounds like you had a trajectory where you maybe aren't, you don't self-identify that way anymore. So how would you label or characterize your political views? Would you consider yourself a leftist or do you prefer not to be boxed into those kind of labels or paradigms? Yeah.
0: Well, there's the thing that when you say you, that right is also a synonym for correct. So why do they get that? And if you look at left in, in French, I, I believe the word is gauche. Isn't that the same word you use for kind of um, ungainly, awkward? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, so why, why do we, uh, I don't know, you know, in terms of, um, it's just the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. And you keep trying to get to the root of what, the problem is, and uh, you keep digging deeper and deeper, if we can do what we do to animals, we can do what we do to people. And so when people say, well, let's take care of the people first, eh, we, our, our society is so based on violence and unbelievable cruelty and superiority. There's a quote and I'm going to uh Butcher it now, ironically, but it's by Isaac Basheva, singer, whose I would say greatest cause was animal rights, and um, of course, which wasn't in his New York Times obituary, um, of course, but um, you know he 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 worked it in everything he he did, and and he was such a powerful advocate. He came over from the horror in Europe, and he looked down upon the stockyards, and he said, "I haven't left." And he's got a quote in Enemy A Love Story, um, which goes something like, as Herman watched the fishermen take their haul from the sea, he thought to himself, all humans are Nazis. The smug superiority with which they do with other creatures as they please exemplified the most extreme racist theories, the principle that might makes right. And it is from that, that, um, expression of power over them that we can we can transfer it to humans I mean all you have to do to make uh humans seem unworthy of uh, of life or compassion uh is is say they're no better than animals, so Jews become the cockroaches of europe you know whatever it, it is um yeah, you know they're 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 dogs they're you know they should be slaughtered like wolves like sheep whatever and um um uh, Uh, I mean, if if you look at the first place that had uh, animal agriculture on a, a wide systematized scale, I believe it was Mesopotamia, It was also the first place that then moved to human slavery because you had whips, you had chains, you had cages, you had the ability to control the lifespan, um, uh, living conditions and reproduction of life much closer to your own than plants. And, And there definitely is a connection that way. So, you know, when people say, we've got to start with humans first, and they say, if we can do what we do to people, how can you expect us to care about animals? But if you can do what we do to animals, who are innocent, save for their instinct, how, you know, who can be a two, one two hundredth of our size, how can you expect us to extend mercy towards human beings who we have much more justifiable grievance against? So, I, I don't, I mean, just, in, it's, uh, we've got to take in the whole picture, and then it gets overwhelming, because how do you live up to your own ethics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm personally a walking contradiction I agree with everything you're saying yet I still consume meat and shield myself to some extent from the horrifying, you know, practices of animal slaughter and, and slaughterhouses. I mean, it's something that, you know, I can barely watch a lot of those videos that come out of PETA, but yet on the other hand, I am completely in agreement um, with the idea that if we treat animals that way, um, then we can't possibly treat other human beings with respect or compassion and, it's definitely something I grapple with and it also seems like it's something that's sort of core to your, your principles. So how do you, um, how much of your work um, and even your music is sort of related to your animal activism? Would you say, is it a pretty big part of it? Yes, but I, I don't know
0: how you, what you think about this, but what does music do? <laughs> you know, I was just talking with a friend about Morrissey and he said he'd seen Morrissey in concert. And he has these, I don't know if you have, but that he has these videos behind him of you know undercover footage at slaughterhouses. Then he has one about the cops showing police violence and murder. Um, and, you know, how does he get away with that? And that's my first question. And, how much? How much does it change, uh, people? I don't know what changes. And my my same friend. I mean, because we're always strategizing, and and he was saying, when the system is so corrupt, and and so uh, so violent and cruel, how can you talk about personal ethics? And uh, I, so I don't know. I just played a prison in West Virginia, and um, oh wow. Yeah, and they, you know, they uh, some some of the prisoners, um, you know, they liked some of the songs, but uh, you know, I think maybe one of the songs they responded to most was a cover because was with a the band. They do a version of "Man, I Feel Like a Woman" by Shania Twain. It was a woman's prison, and it was the familiar. It was that thrill of feel-good music, pop music. Everybody knows it, and yet. That song is apolitical. I mean, what are we trying to express? How, I don't know. How do you, I don't know. I just felt, I, I don't know what people want. I don't, I don't even know. You know what I mean? I mean, just how, how do you work things into, because I've given out flyers at my show and I find them crumpled beneath the the tables And I go nuts, I go nuts. I just feel like, don't listen to my music. If you're gonna do that to a flyer, (laughs) that is is what I care about more in this world than any chord progression, don't listen to my music. I feel like this primary. If you can't even, you know, if you're not even as left as Bernie, which is not left, I mean, you know, which is barely a step in the right direction, don't listen to my music. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, look, I see the the beauty in people and their homes and they care and everyone has different, but if you're not even going to go, far, I'm, oh, Robbie. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I like, I like what you're doing because you're, I mean, you're definitely challenging. Uh, I'm sure some parts of your audience, um, by, by, uh, expressing these kinds of views. And I think that's great, but I also understand the dilemma of, how much change can you actually affect through art and music i mean it's it's kind of a balancing act and at the same time i mean a lot of people you know consume art and music so they don't have to pay attention to the real world in in a certain way so it's kind of it's kind of a hard thing um to you know weave that into sort of an artistic work but you've done i mean being an activist is a large part of who you are, it seems. And um, you even wrote a song in 2004 called John John, expressing your preference for Ralph Nader over John Kerry. And as someone who is embarrassed to say that I voted for John Kerry in 2004 and deeply regretted it, um, I'm impressed that you were already on this, you know, arguably radical track back then. Back then, did you get any flack or criticism for expressing that in song form?
0: I guess not, but I mean, I'm I went with Planned Parenthood to Florida to stand on a stage with Hillary Clinton in support of John Kerry. So I I was <laughs> conflicted then, I have to say. In 2008, I vote in Pennsylvania. I thought I had to vote for Obama, not just because I'm in a swing state and he was a Democrat, but because the first black president, that seemed like, you know, um, I, I was happy. I was so happy, you know, when that happened. And uh, even in 2012, I thought, well, you know, maybe not having to run for re-election, you know, think, you know, Obama will do more in the next four years or he'll stop some of the bad things. And I thought, well, we can't have Romney, you know, the other side always seems worse. And I thought the first black president should be a two-term president. And, um, you know, you just kind of, I should have voted for Ralph. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I know he ran in 2008. I don't know. If, I forget who ran it. It was Jill Stein, wasn't it, in 2012?
1: I think so. Yeah. In terms of a, the Green Party, I th- I want to say it was Jill Stein, but I'm not certain.
0: Because I did, I did the the rallies with Ralph. I mean, I've always uh, supported him, and uh, and then when it came down to it, because I'm in Pennsylvania and and the historical thing, I, I just you know, so that's what I regret. But, you know, try expressing that to people, that what you regret is not voting for Jill Stein in 2016. It's voting for the neoliberals before. Uh, you know, it, it, people's heads explode.
1: Yeah. And this is a, something that also fascinates me about what, what the world that you operate in, in. You've been on Broadway. You've been on Prairie Home Companion with Garrison Keillor which is on npr you've starred in plays alongside of other you know famous hollywood actors typically speaking people usually in your position subscribe to a more template form of liberal politics and i don't want to turn this into like a hollywood bubble shit talking session but how do you navigate that world as you do while having the politics you do is it do you find yourself feeling isolated at times? Is it a challenge or do you feel comfortable openly sharing your politics with your colleagues in, in sort of this professional capacity?
0: Well, I don't like to argue when I'm eating. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's, it's just such a shame to me because I, I thought art was how you changed the world. I, and so I I just get devastated. I think really the only reason to to be a a part of that world really is the money. Um you know, in order to pay your bills and because it allows me to talk to you because you know, from the outside it looks like you know you're doing things. But I think really I'd rather be door knocking, you know. If I could make the money elsewhere, I would just make my own work independently, you know, um, political people, people who know what's going on, people who see how this has happened systemically for twenty, forty, a hundred years. I mean, that's that's who I really want to spend time with it's show business. it's just it's so shallow. It's not that they're not lovely people, but I get so depressed with the politics.
1: Well, I can imagine you yeah. do. I mean, that's that's part of why I asked you about that, because we share, you know, we have a lot of overlap in our politics. And I mean, just from the outside looking in, in the world of show business, it doesn't seem like there are very many people who are even, let's just say in a, in a diet way, sort of even Bernie supporters, there's not very many of them. I think like Danny DeVito and a handful of other people in Hollywood came out to support Bernie, but have you met others in show business who share your politics um, and who are, are even like, you know, like a lighter version of your politics, like who are really into Bernie and, and found a pocket of solidarity within that community?
0: Yeah, uh, Max Casella, who I just did the show with, um, he's, he's he works all the time uh, as an actor and uh, he's... Um, He's, he's very vocal and he'll drink and talk politics all night. He's, he's, he's working class and he just, he's, he's no nonsense. Whereas I, uh, I, I don't, do, do you, do have, are you good with the kind of, uh, I, I always, I'm a pleaser, you know, I, I just want to, uh, um, I I feel like I go from zero to two hundred. There's very little in between with me, and I, I it means too much. It just kind of rips your heart out trying to. You don't know where to begin, you know. When you're when you're talking to people who they they watch the they watch the TV, which is the corporations all the time, and they read the New York Times, and you you have to be better at communicating, I think, than I am to. To remember that that's where I don't know how I got from there to here, you know, and I don't really know how to. You send a, someone an article, hey, Robbie. I how how do you talk to many people? I think it's so good to talk face to face, but I kind of I I don't know how to do it that well.
1: We seem to be doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, from from what I can see, but I, for me personally, I'm more of a keyboard warrior. I'm uh, I get I have social anxiety, so I even finding me at an on the ground protest is rare. Even though I I want to be more involved in that, but I do most of my activism from from the internet and interfacing with people that way. And it's definitely probably limits my ability to spread you know ideas uh, more, but it's just, it's just sort of how I've operated. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage myself and other people to get more active as well, but, you know, I think doing every little bit you can is good. I mean, we're all just sort of cogs in this bigger wheel trying to, you know, trying to change, make change. So I try not to get down on myself (laughs) for it, but sometimes I, you know, I realize the lack of, uh, engagement I'm offering sometimes, um, you know, someone who's always at street protests and, and on the ground will, you know, would probably see me as very lazy, which is fine.
0: No, no. Well, there was something I read by a disability activist that said that when people say armchair activists, they're, um, they're not, um, you know, that, that it kind of puts down people who can't leave the house, you know. There are some people that are unable to. So, and the, also, the internet is so powerful. So I wouldn't discount what you do at all. But most people, um, when they see things, they don't engage with it online, but they see it. You know? So it has so much more of a manifold impression on people than um, than than what you get back. Um, and uh, I've learned so much online. I've been shaped so much from what is online because I have a dog who's a little bit disabled. She's getting older. It's like living with a terminally ill child. So... I, you know, I mean, the Bernie movement and then so many people that I listen to online, including yourself, they they change your life, but you don't even realize that's what you're doing.
1: Oh, well, I appreciate the encouragement and I'm glad that um, the work I do has had a positive impact on you.
0: Yeah, but you know, uh, you you gave me this uh, a very heavy agenda, and and Robbie, I, I still I barely I barely began to begin with home. So I I still, but I I can't wait to watch it. Have you been doing anything? Are you doing anything around the anniversary of it each year that it came out?
1: Um, I'm planning on releasing a fourth part of it because the story continues. So. I but I'm waiting for sort of this whole impeachment thing to get resolved, and uh, it's I, I my goal with this new one is to try to get everybody to get outside of their own individual bubbles and to sort of zoom out from everything. So it's a little bit more challenging for me this time because the previous you know films that I did are much more. Um, I, easy to digest I suppose so this one's going to be a little more I guess let's just say wacky so I hope I hope people like it but um but yeah I'm looking forward to you watching it and, and getting your thoughts on it for sure
0: yeah I mean Robbie I'm almost wondering I mean if if I can I I can't believe I can't believe I didn't do, in, in preparation for this it's just because I'm still every day it's just it's such a catch-up um I've I've been I've been a was it four months
1: now i wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of the activist th- things that you've done in the past tell us a little bit about the case of troy davis who was sadly executed on death row in 2011 but you wrote a song uh, with several other people in support of him tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that and what that experience was like for you because it sounds very sad and tragic and i you know, I don't want to things to get too somber here, but I would, I'm, I'm just curious what that what that was like for you.
0: It was a, a terrible case. Um, he um, he w- was likely innocent. Um, there, you know, they they should have stopped the execution. Um, he he was executed on, uh, in 2011 in September. Um, there was so much outcry. And, you know, it's uh, if killing people, why are we killing people for killing people? You know, when, I, when we just played this prison, uh, at, at the end of it, you know, uh, at the end of the concerts, it's, you know, group C, single file. And I just, even outside of the death penalty, I, you know, I would not do well in prison. Like, it's just, oh, I, I don't think I could take it. You you, uh, it's you know and 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 the I'm not making these are all kind of disjointed thoughts here, but it's just obviously the hypocrisy of our society. It's the hypocrisy of prison. It's not that people uh, don't don't do terrible you know individual things, but um, again, in a society where the worst are are they're not only free but. They uh, they're raking it in. They're uh, they're living the high life. It's 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 obscene. It's indefensible. You know, it's
1: uh. It's also totally dehumanizing. I mean, sure, witnessing firsthand I mean, being inside of a prison was quite a enlightening experience. I mean, you you know, you see these prison specials on TV and cops and all that stuff, but you don't. I don't think people really understand how dehumanizing it really is until you're inside one. Um,
0: well, it's dehumanizing. And yet I think that the, um, you know, some guards, some wardens, they try to make it um, a, uh, it's, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, they, they, they try to make it in some places, more of a rehabilitation place than just a punishment Place so you know uh, in some places there they're more access to libraries or education. There's um, you can work with guards. In this prison, they they work with dogs to um, so to train them. They they live in their cells with them. Some of the dogs were at the shows, and uh, and and they go to vets with PTSD. Um, and uh, you know they had a maternity ward um it, but it's all just it's all this sick joke I mean the whole thing you know, and how many people are in prison um I, I believe it's half are they're nonviolent uh crimes um it, and I'm not sure of what uh was that life sentences this was from the, the recent chris hedges interview with with Abby martin um and um uh so I don't have all the statistics, right, But it's just, you know. And what is the 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 rate of going back and committing a crime again? I mean, I think for men, once you age out of a, that certain period of time, your twenties, thirties, the idea that you go back and commit more violent crimes plummets. Um, and for women, I, I think it's it's much much less. And women tend to, I believe, uh, uh, receive longer sentences, and they are reviewed more critically and get often get less uh, chance at parole or receive less parole because I think women are seen as uh, they're supposed to be better than that. And uh, how many women in prison are mothers? How many kids are missing their mother who tends to be the primary or sole caregiver of those kids? The whole thing, it's just... But, Robbie, I mean... the the tragedy of life is everyone pretty much thinks they're doing the right thing. <laughs> there are so few genuine psychopaths, and there are sociopaths, but most people aren't that. They just, they go along with this psychopathic society.
1: Yeah, they're following orders. I mean, it's... Yeah. And, and you know, not that this is, will be unfamiliar to Media Roots Radio listeners, but America still holds the record for the highest percentage of incarcerated members of their own population. We are, I think China and Iran maybe rank right below us, but it's it's fascinating the way that we talk about our country being this free democratic society, this beacon of freedom throughout the world, yet we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. I mean, it's, it's quite strange. But you also produced a musical show of your own called A Girl Named Bill, which is based off the life of transgender jazz musician Billy Tipton. Tell our listeners a little bit about why you decided to do this project and a little bit about Billy Tipton.
0: Well, prior to that show, we'd done two other biographical shows. One was of Rachel Carson, so that was quite relevant. We thought about calling the show Nice Try, Rachel, because it's a lighthearted look at pesticide poisoning and and an attitude towards the environment that, uh, of course... Has only increased, if anything, uh, since she wrote *Silent Spring*. And then, prior to that, was one about Barbara Graham, who was the third woman executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin. And it, it just one more thing about the death penalty: it's the ultimate premeditation. I mean, there's nothing colder and more. Uh, there's no. There's no passion or feeling in the crimes of the state. You know, it, it's 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 the ultimate judgment, and um, and and lack of mercy or forgiveness or all these things we're supposed to believe in. If, if you ever see the movie *I Want to Live*, which is based on the life of. Uh, Barbara Graham they do a really good job of showing the steps leading to her murder and when she's waiting and praying for the governor's call and she gets a stay she gets a stay of execution phone call after phone call and finally they say no we're going to go ahead and you see the cyanide dropped you see the gas begin in the chamber it's really well done it's a movie from the 50s but it's it's still all too sadly relevant what's the Um, movie called again? i want to live
1: okay and it's It's a dramatized version of her story
0: yeah it's with susan hayward and the soundtrack is by jerry mulligan it's great soundtrack um and i was talking to david Byrne. he came to see the show and uh, he said he he was it had a real impact on him when he saw that movie um and then in her her real life saga um we do some elements that aren't even in the movie in that show. We, we'd love to do them again. Uh, it's just that the band eats too much <laughs> um, <laughs> to take them on the road. But then the third uh, um, uh, biographical show we do with the band is of Billy Tipton. Again, it's in the 1950s. In the 50s, it, 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 there was so much going on in that decade. And I think so much of it was that it came after the bomb. And that um, it just it, it that changed the the world. It changed the culture permanently. We now have the ability to annihilate all life on Earth, and um, we're still coping with that. But you really see you see that in film noir. You see that in the Beatnik movement. You see that in the Baby Boom um, boomers. I always thought they were the greatest generation because they i i i know there were so many social justice and labor movements of 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 the 30s and 40s especially the communists and socialists and um you know which which helped the civil rights movement there was so much there um and then there there, there were you know there obviously there was the fight for the right for women to vote you know there's there've been so many the abolitionists there's so many people's movements but to me for some reason the 60s had such a hold on uh, on my imagination, because they challenged so much of of our politics, both personal and political. You know what it meant to be a man. You know, old people saying cut your hair. <laughs> you know, uh, the idea of superior violence. They, it seemed like the whole world opened up. And so now it just devastates me that the boomer, so many of of the boomers have turned on themselves. And they've um, they've diminished what they accomplished, and they've turned their back on uh, on what they seem to really believe in. That's devastating. But anyway, all three shows, including Billy Tipton, they're set in the 50s, and I think it's because so much was going on then. Color TV, TV. Have you ever seen Jerry Mander's Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television? It's a book. No. It's good. He also wrote another one called In the Absence of the Sacred, which uh, ties in with the American Indian movement. Really good books. And I think that's his real name, Jerry Mander.
1: Interesting. Well, it, yeah. it, once you see, if you get around to watching uh, part two of A Very Heavy Agenda, uh, the film concludes with a a long section about how much TV in the 1950s like shaped our reality tunnel and how important and vital it was for... Sort of the propaganda um, that continued after World War II. I mean, t- yes. TV news, I mean, before that, it was all, you know, film reels that you would go see, like, before, you okay. know, movies at the movie theater and, or radio. And it just does not have as much of a profound effect as the TV tube does in delivering propaganda. So, the boomers, uh, you know, had a lot to contend with, <laughs> sort of the fears of nuclear Armageddon and they were being bombarded with like the most sophisticated propaganda delivery method we've ever, you know, humans had ever seen at that time. So, um, in a way, I have sympathy for boomers, but, but it, you're t- completely right. I mean, I personally know many of them who were the biggest hippies ever. Now, they uh, watch Fox News constantly. So, it's a it's definitely a kind of a boomerang effect, I guess, if you want to call it, a horseshoe effect of that sort of plagued the boomer generation.
0: Yeah, well, because they did reject that propaganda. They they were so inundated with it, and they did en masse reject it, and then they went back to it. I never understand that, Robbie. I mean, I understand the kind of reluctant cap- capitulation we make. For instance, I don't... I, I don't want to eat any animal products, and yet I, uh, you know, the dairy—it's—it's it's pretty much a daily battle. Sometimes, you know, depending where I am, I'm emotional. I don't plan well, you know. Um, and um, you're a touring but, uh, musician.
1: I mean, that's a hard—it's a hard
0: gig. Yeah, but I mean, the, the female animals, the dairy animals, uh, get treated worse than the male animals because they always eventually. The dairy industry is the meat industry. Yeah. So. I'm I'm complicit in that, but it's not a kind of, I don't believe in it. I, I can't, I can't understand how people can go, can, can regress. I, I, I that, you know, just in, in their minds and hearts and souls, how does that happen?
1: I, I don't know. I think it's just, um, I mean, there is a there is a working theory that some academics came up with after 9-11 called the terror management theory, and that sort of all relates to the innate fear of death, that um, a lot of your sort of ideology gets ins- influenced by the fear of death to the point where it can actually convert you into be you know being a radical anti-government activist to being like a government bootlicker. So, I think 9-11 had a pretty profound impact on those boomers and even people from my generation i mean they've i've noticed a lot of them have become more conservative or regressed uh, as they got older so i don't know it seems to be it just seems to happen to a lot of people and i don't really know where it stems from but it's oddly manifesting all around me of of people that i you know know in real life so it's
0: it's strange but you know even even of our generation because i was hoping the things, I mean, I'm not happy things are so bad, but that more and more people are moving towards socialism or some version of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I actually think the younger generation uh, than us is probably more inspired by that from what, I, from what I've seen. But maybe, you know, maybe I'm just too cynical. I'm in the Bay Area, so I feel like I should be seeing it more than I am among, among people my age, but I'm not really seeing it much. I think during the Obama era here it was especially a wake-up call for me that we are not necessarily have regressed as an activist community in the Bay Area, but we're just not really radicalized yet like we should be. I mean, the peak of Occupy, for example, was happening during uh, when Obama was bombing Libya. And I remember finding that a really uncomfortable space to be in at Occupy, joining these marches while nobody wanted to talk about Obama bombing Libya. And I just remember thinking, you know, both of these things are completely related. We need to talk about them both together. So I think people aren't necessarily there yet, but hopefully they, they'll they get there. People will link together our domestic problems with the foreign policy um, that we, you know, spread all over the world. That's a very nice way of saying it. So I, I have hope. At the same time, I'm also... I don't put much faith in our generation (laughs) to change things but but i am very cynical so that's just my a chip on my shoulder i guess but i kind of wanted to shift to your musical career because this is also a big part of your life you've been on npr you've been on prairie home companion you've worked with david byrne i mean you worked with all these very famous uh, iconoclastic musicians but how did you actually get started as an artist and musician, did your parents have any influence on this direction in your life? And just going back to what we were just talking about, did they also have an inspiration on your political direction as well?
0: Did my parents have, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, my, um, my, my mom was always curious, you know? And so, um, she picked up a copy of Peter Singer's animal liberation, Uh, I think it was at a thrift store and she had a feeling this was going to change her life so she put off reading it then maybe a year later she did and uh, and we'd gone to a protest outside NYU um, which was about uh, NYU's laboratories and she passed a sign and she thought, you know, what are they doing to that monkey? And uh, so we got involved in the animal rights movement and, um, uh, but, you know, she was always she was open. She was caring. She was curious. And somehow people get very really closed off, and uh, they shut down as human beings. And of course, it's a lot of that's by design. I mean, school—it's—it's—it's it's, it's boring. Uh, it's you have dictated to you what your interests will be, when they will be, what your schedule will be. I believe that young people naturally their sleep cycle would be for them to rise later in the day and school tends to start so early. And I believe that part of that has to do with having light after school for sports. So, you know, you also look at the tech technology companies um, that they, they want us to get less sleep because if we can stay up online another hour and then, are hence sleep deprived, but that's another hour they can use us to gather our information and to make money off us one way or another. So, I mean, there's just, you know, you have all these people, young people, they're hooked to their devices. They're more sleep deprived than ever. They're sleep deprived anyway because of the dictates of the school system. They go in, they're not learning what they're interested in, which means you absorb so little of it. You're learning to be bored and take orders and follow a hierarchy and have desk. You're looking at each other's backs up towards one person who is basically telling you what to do it certainly has power over your life. It, it, it—your whole life then follows that format. And uh, um, so I, I, I don't. I guess that's how people get their curiosity crushed out of them. I, I was very lucky, you know, um, to be raised. I guess, I guess you were too. That you want to learn things, and you want to hear things that are uncomfortable, you know and and, and, and keep i don't i don't I don't really know how people can live with orthodoxy. It must be that must be such a drag, man
1: <laughs> well, it sounds I mean, it sounds like you weren't raised with any specific orthodoxy. i you're I take it, you probably weren't raised religious. am I correct?
0: Ah, uh, no, right. <laughs> Okay. How
1: could you tell? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting reading about your father. Uh, just a slight detour about him, Malcolm McKay. Um, he has a very interesting body of work as a playwright, and he operated seemingly in the space of BBC, um, working a lot of these plays. And I haven't seen any of them myself, but the, from what I've read about them, they appear to be very politically charged. Some of them, and. Uh, occasionally dealt with very controversial subjects like specifically AIDS and military drug abuse. Um, and that's, you know, that's sort of out of the ordinary. That's Those sound like, you know, difficult subjects to be able to make plays out of, and especially from the time period that he did. So, how did you perceive these works by your father when you were younger? Did you understand them? Um, did they seem edgy or controversial or like, and how do you see them now?
0: Yeah, you know, I but Robbie, I have to say I'm not that familiar with them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but I I uh I you know, the theater is just a it's no matter what you do, um you're getting people almost exclusively from moneyed classes. You know, that's the theater is a, it you know, has a much higher medium income than say movies or music um, and pop music has been so constrained by, uh, you know, corporations taking over the radio. Uh, and that's a little bit of that is discussed in Death of the Liberal Class by Chris Hedges. Um, and I think that was following the 60s that they really consolidated and made it much harder for people can find things, although maybe I'm just making excuses because I'm bad at the internet because, <laughs> you know, some people do find a way, but, um, but, but theater also it's live. If everybody walks out, um, but you don't have a show, uh, it, it doesn't exist apart from the audience because it's live. You can't just make it and hope it'll be discovered in 30 years. I guess you can write it, but you know, so you, you see so many things, I don't see much, say, on Broadway, but you see things that that they're supposed to be political or radical, or they're talking about uh, Palestine. Are they really? You know, if you make a show about the Palestinians and Hillary Clinton comes to see it... How much are you actually saying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel you like know? you're 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 talking indirectly about something, and I'm curious to know exactly what, which play this is. Or, are you just talking oh, no, figuratively? no, that
0: was a play. There it was, it was, was, was a show what's it called, what uh, the band is it? Visit. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen the show. So I'm just, I'm guessing, though, you know, because I know two people who I've worked with and loved working with who worked on that. But I'm just saying those people don't come to that show and sit through it. Art is so tricky. Uh, I mean, because people come to my show and I'm trying as hard as I can to say something while keeping it entertaining. And still at the end, when I hear what people say, I want to shoot myself in the head. (laughs) I just think, no, (laughs) Oh no. I, I don't know what, because if you actually go for the jugular as you do, you would have to alienate because you, it would have to be that raw truth. The only thing I cling to is the idea that, um, that people need to hear it from, they say, seven different sources before it even registers as an idea. And I wonder how many different sources they have to hear it from before it, it, it changes them because we're up against such an avalanche of propaganda and indoctrination that happens from cradle to grave, from sources both subtle and blatant, you know, it's that Marxist idea that it's disseminated, um, not just in the most obvious ways, but in ways we can't even see in ways it's almost impossible to deal with. So we are up against so much money (laughs) that, you know, we, we, know, uh, may, maybe we're asking for too much.
1: Well, I think, I mean, there's a glimmer of hope here too, where it seems like there's really a climate after Trump got in office where they are. there is a lot of the ruling class are trying to, you know, like they've always done, marginalize independent or radical media figures, but they're now, you know, outright trying to censor them and get them deplatformed. And I think, You know, in some ways that's frightening that they've gone to those uh, levels to do that. But on the other hand, it's also hopeful that they are that desperate to stop, you know, people like my sister, Abby Martin. They even, uh, an Israeli lobbying group that's funded by the Israeli government, tried to get her deplatformed off Joe Rogan permanently. They sent him hundreds of emails encouraging him uh, that my sister was uh, possibly anti-Semitic and can't be trusted. And this is, you know, this is how these groups operate. It comes in all forms and you know, every little bit helps. So I'm glad, you know, that there's someone like you out there who's trying to express some of these points of view through through your work and not just your work, but also just in your private life as well. I mean, you're obviously coming from a good place. I don't want to make people feel like there's no hope here, but you do have to alienate people sometimes to go for the jugular. You know, I think it's also served me well in some instances, but it's probably also burned some bridges for me in certain instances, and that's just sort of the price that I've paid for it.
0: But also, Robbie, people can change their mind, so it's that thing people can get so mad at each other, and then they can people can change. They can hear it from somewhere else, and they can think maybe Robbie was right about that.
1: <laughs> well, let's hope so. And
0: it may you may fi- you may feel it's too late, but
1: I wanted to ask you more about your music you're such an amazing singer i i just wanted to know how young were you when you realized you could sing when did you realize you wanted to actually do that professionally and did you also take lessons or train to be a singer or was this ability um something that came naturally to you
0: oh uh yeah like i was playing little gigs with a little trio or quartet and then uh my friend, the bass player said, "Yeah, stick to the piano, Nelly. really he didn't like the sing, yeah, but hey, uh, <laughs> yeah, the singer got all the credit, yeah, and you may have noticed as well, <laughs> so why why would you stay in the shadows? You're doing more work, you're only noticed if you get something wrong. It's like housework, <laughs> you know you you only know, people only notice it if you don't do it, uh, so, yeah, why not get out there Do you, you sing, Robbie?"
1: no i don't do you want to <laughs> maybe maybe that would be really getting outside of my comfort zone so i I'm, I'm kind of into the idea of getting outside my comfort zone recently so yeah why the hell not
0: yeah how else are you going to get out your comfort zone
1: i know right singing is probably one of the one, would probably be one of the most vulnerable things i could possibly do so yeah let's give it a shot sometime <laughs>
0: What what would you? What kind? What
1: kind of music would you sing? I don't know. I mean, I'd probably want to sing over my own music if I did, which would be, you know, kind of a weird mixture. Um, uh, but yeah, that's probably what I would do. I would want to sing over my own electronic music compositions. But now that I'm even actually spe- saying that out loud, it sounds very weird, and I have a hard time imagining what that would be like. Um, but it's the idea intrigues me. So. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah and you'd write lyrics
1: I would, which would also be very weird for me um and uh you've been writing lyrics for a long time though i mean it's is that something that you do um like does the inspiration to write lyrics just come to you suddenly do you are you the type of person who walks around with like a little tape recorder or notepad to write things down like how do those how do those pop into your head?
0: I, you know, I mean, I guess once in a blue moon, I think most of the I think this is an expression of self-sabotage, but I think most of the time I hear something, I think, oh, I should write that down, and then I don't, and it's gone.
1: I mean, you've written so many lyrics, they must come from somewhere.
0: Yeah, but they're very hard. I, I would love to just do, my Auntie Chrissy's always saying, why don't you do an album you don't sing on? <laughs> and uh and um she's actually lovelier than that but she can so, oh, ah, lower <laughs> your voice uh, and lyrics are, are very hard they, it, it's 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 like you can't crack it you have a melody and just there's nothing maybe i need to drink more <laughs>
1: But you have uh, so. Would you say your passion with music making is more geared towards the compositional end of it, rather than the actual performative singing aspect of it? Or
0: I, I think so. I don't. I don't know people. You know, it just seems so private to me. Mostly, when I listen to music, it's just so private. I. But you, since you perform live, do you enjoy the communal thing? Because I just I almost never go to concerts, so. It, it it just seems like it's, it's something you listen to when you're making the homemade dog food or you're driving and you could pretend you're in a movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, I definitely enjoy performing. Um, but I'm also not putting myself out there in as vulnerable a way as you are. I don't sing, I don't perform a live instrument while I'm performing. So I have a lot to fall back on. And I think I, I can't imagine the level of anxiety I would experience of, uh, of doing the kind of performances you do, there's more room for error <laughs> with what I do. A lot of it's on the computer. A lot of it's pre-sequence. So I mean, I'm I'm just sort of fascinated by the level of willpower <laughs> that it takes to g- just get up on stage like you do. And your audience, I mean, like I was saying at the beginning, they seem extremely engaged with your performances. I mean, the an- the crowd energy was kind of I haven't really seen that before, unless it's at a very very large show. You know, with like a superstar you know, stadium kind of uh, vibe to it. I mean, what is that like for you when people are singing along to your lyrics? Um, how does
0: that make you feel? Well, I mean, it's it's, it's great. You know, if they, it's if they fixing and they die, that's great. I, I mean, it does seem like salespeople, they like a love song. It seems like there's so many of those that, um, I, I mean, people, they're, they're capable of such tenderness, and yet they accept... Things that that they that are are repugnant to them. They don't really accept them. They they champion them. They defend them. They don't just tolerate them. They celebrate them. And it's it's the schizophrenia. I guess that's what I think about more than the music, really. Because uh, you know, I, I know some people don't like this, but Van Morrison, you know, he kind of said it's all been done. I mean, to a degree, it has. I envy people who really have something to say creatively because at this point I, I I would just love, you know, healthcare for everybody. Could we stop bombing people? Could we just, you know, could we, no more factory farms? Could we, could, could we stop treating animals like unfeeling machines and just extend them equal consideration as beings that can suffer? Could we just do that? I really don't think the world needs another song. But I'm glad if you make more music cuz I really love your music.
1: Love yours as well.
0: Well, I just I just, you know, again I spent a lot of time in the car and and, and your music it has the the beat of the road to it. <laughs> well,
1: that's that's about, that's good. I like that description. Yeah, I gave Nelly a copy of uh the record label records compilations Drinking the Goat's Blood and Electric Carpets for anyone who wants to check those out.
0: And I love I love leaving them on the seat when I have to park somewhere. <laughs> because they not only obviously have but they have these um, these pictures with them. Uh and where are those pictures from, probably? What yeah.
1: Those are both from um a Masonic supply catalog, uh, for initiation ritual pranks. Um, that Masons would like to play on each other, apparently. Uh, and I, I don't think they sell those kind of things anymore, but they used to have a whole catalog um, back in, like, 19... I think it's, that's, like, from 1915 or so, of, uh, of, yeah. They're all Masonic pranks, so... I'm obsessed with the Freemasons, in case you didn't already know that.
0: Yeah, if they, have, they have that, that feeling of um, 60s counterculture commentary. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. The
1: the way they put together. Yeah. You just started in a play uh that was produced by Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers fame called A Play is a Poem. And as a personal huge fan of Ethan Cohen and the Cohen brothers body of work, uh I can't imagine what it would be like to work with someone like Ethan Cohen. I mean it sounds kinda like a dream to me. So what was it like for you to work on? a play as a poem? I mean, just on a personal level, like how did that, and and also tell us a little bit about how that happened for you. Did you have to audition for the role? How did you get involved in that?
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'd gone up for a couple of uh, Coen Brothers uh, pictures and, um, and then Ethan had come to some shows and uh, so, you know, he's, he's, he really knows, he, he almost always references a, a, a band or an artist I don't know, and I pretend to know <laughs> what he's talking about but uh you know he loves music. it's so funny because I think I know more movie trivia uh just I don't know more than him, but I, that's what I, I know more movie trivia than music trivia in my head is especially from the, the the golden age, the black and whites and um uh, and he's really into music, so it's just that thing everybody is interested in what they less of what they do as a profession it would seem but um yeah so yeah he asked me to do it that was nice
1: so he just directly you didn't have to audition for a play as a poem he he directly asked you to be in it
0: yeah thank god i would have fucked it up
1: (laughs) and just out of curiosity can you tell can you tell us really quickly what other coen brother films you auditioned for
0: yeah, as, as a folk singer and inside Luan Davis, ah, uh, as both the wife and the secretary—they're two different parts in uh, the one "Hail Caesar." Oh wow! There okay, another one? there might have been another one.
1: Wow, that's incredible! Yeah, because inside and Davis, uh really, you know, sort of shows you that they are, or or at least Ethan, from what you're telling me, is like very, very musically knowledgeable. That's a really amazing film. I mean, not just for a Coen Brothers movies, but also just like the sort of the musical history in it. Describe what this, what it was like. I mean, what kind of a play was this? Um, it sounds almost, I mean, from the way that I read about what the play was like and even the title itself, it sounds like there's some, a, kind of a meta aspect to it. Like it's not, it doesn't sound like it's a typical play. So how how would you describe it? And what was your role in this?
0: Oh yeah, it was it was the the music. So I would do a song uh, in between each act and uh and, and top and tail it. And, uh and um, they they uh even and uh our, our director Neil, they uh, they were so generous. Up until opening night I was trying out an entirely different song and they were letting me op uh improvise and I and mean, let me improvise even within the show. There were spots. It's um, you know they're, they're, they're secure and, uh, and, uh, and it, 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 that that's rare. There's so many there's so much insecurity. I think in, in so much of the professional class because people care about their careers and um, and it, it, it you know all life is an extension of high school. And so to to be um, given that liberty by two people whose work I, I admire, I, it was so, it was so much fun. It was just so much fun, and you realize, oh, this is how it could always be. It doesn't have to, you know, uh, be kind of a, a, a way of therapy for you know for some people. It's it's like a it's like a primal scream session. Working, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah,
1: my dog's <laughs> sensing that. <laughs> <laughs> so th- it sounds like you had a, uh, felt very liberated uh, in a in a way during this um, production. Um, you were able to improvise. Would did you expect that going into it, or did you? Because Ethan Cohen, I mean, the Cohen brothers, you know, just generally speaking, they they don't they're not really known for letting their actors ad lib, or you know, things are very on the page, like exactly as they are on the page. So when you went into this production, was that, did that come as a shock to you that it was, that they gave you this kind of freedom or was that sort of part of it? Like, did you know that going into it, that you would be allowed uh, these spaces to improvise in and and that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. It's funny. It starts as a freedom and it becomes this responsibility because, you know, or people backstage, they'll be like, Oh, you know, we, we, we want to know, you know, it's not like you can't come up with anything, you know, and, uh, but it's, 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 it's just lovely. It's just lovely. So, um, you know, what, what, what a joy. And it makes you want to try harder. It's great. Yeah, but it, it, it is a surprise because I think myself too, and perhaps yourself, you can become a control freak because you want it to be the best. And so that can constrict you. So you, you want it to be tight enough and yet, um, and, and yet, still have room to breathe. It's it's a balancing act. I don't know how you cope with that, say in live performances, because it would seem with your work that if it's based on a computer, that that would be even more rigid. From I mean, how can you miss a beat? You know, with with, with what you do, and and how much leeway do you allow yourself?
1: For me personally, um, I. You know, since I don't perform an instrument like you do live, uh, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's giving me anxiety right now to even just think about what it would be like to improvise and an o- Ethan Cohen play <laughs> in front of a live audience. Hats off to you for you know putting yourself in that position. I I would really like to get an opportunity to see it as well. So if it is playing again, I would I would love to come.
0: Oh, well, yeah, just say the word. I think it'll be in New York in the spring. But when you, you know, it, if you say you were singing now as part of your uh, a show, what, what would you do to, to overcome? Cause this is the thing. If stress is the biggest killer, we shouldn't be performing. <laughs> we're killing ourselves. So how do you get over that? Because, come on, you've got to enjoy life, right? Yeah. Any, I'm looking for ideas.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I have to completely admit, I mean, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but the first I'd say the first 20 times I performed, I had it was having a near panic attack during the entire performance. And somehow I wanted so badly to be a performer that I just kept doing it until I got over it. I'm actually shocked that I didn't give up because I, my body, the way my system is wired, it was not meant to be a performer. I mean, it's clear, uh, based on what I'm saying now. So it, it was sort of a powering through my own anxiety and yeah, I probably am killing myself on some level, but I also highly enjoy it. And the, you know, even, even some of the anxiety before a show, it sort of, you know, keeps me alert and, uh, and, you know, it's, it gives you you know makes you high kind of in a way you seem really comfortable on stage if you told me that you got anxious before shows i mean i I would have a hard time believing it because you seem so natural and comfortable uh, on the stage um if you saw me perform you would be able to tell i was i still am nervous every time i perform and it shows and i think you would you would immediately be able to tell (laughs) somebody told me in my last show that i should look look at the audience more that was that was the one comment that i got so i'm going to take that to heart is it true? I don't, I don't look at the audience very much when I play. It gives me anxiety, too.
0: <laughs> and do you talk to them much?
1: Uh, the audience? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. And that's one of the fun things about going to see your show is how much back-and-forth banter and interaction there is between you and the audience.
0: Oh, well, we should do a show together.
1: <laughs> Let's do that. That'll be, that'd be that'd really be- interesting.
0: Where do you normally play in Oakland?
1: I play at these little tiny, like experimental music venues <laughs> that like, like the one I'm playing at in May is a, it's part of a jazz series where the, where the person who curates it does free jazz stuff. So yeah, that'd be, that'd be really fun. Let's talk about that some more off air.
0: Yeah. But, but, but Robbie, do you, how much do you improvise? Cause for me, I hear so much in my head and I still, and this is pathetic. i mean by this point i should have learned how to express it on the keys but i still can't express on the keys what i hear in my head it's so frustrating can you
1: oh no i'm not even close (laughs) no i mean there's when you hear stories about and you probably know which musician i'm talking about um i think it was a classical musician from the 19th century who said he woke up from a dream where the devil was playing the violin and he, and he immediately, when he woke up from the dream, he transcribed like a three minute long composition that he heard that was note for note what he heard in his dream. I don't know if I believe that story, but um, I think certain people are probably wired that way. I'm definitely not. Um, but I envied the pe- people who are. I mean, that's an incredible skill to have.
0: So do you write down snippets or record snippets that you just, you just hum into your phone? Uh, um,
1: I think most of the time I'm mostly doing sort of like hunting and pecking on a keyboard, like
0: mm.
1: like a you know I put together my melodies very slowly.
0: It sounds like it would take so long.
1: It does. It does. That's and that's another thing I envy about the kind of music that you do is it just see. I mean, it just can come out of you. I mean, you you know where you're playing ukulele, keyboards, vocals. And also what's cool is you can do it after the apocalypse.
0: <laughs>
1: you can, you know, you don't, after the EMP bombs go off and all electronics are destroyed, you'd still be able to make music and express your art. I wouldn't, I'd have to go back to like drawing or something like that. So something to think about for the future.
0: Oh, you could learn you in two seconds, but what is an EMP bomb?
1: <laughs> it's the electromagnetic pulse. It's the, um, uh, it destroys electronics down on the ground, like permanently. So it can actually destroy circuit boards and stuff like that. Let's um, talk about some stuff that's happening right now before before we close out the episode. You're about to head off to the Iowa caucus. I'm assuming you're you're rooting for Bernie right now, but as you said, you're he's a, he's a little bit of a step in the right direction. I think we feel similarly about Bernie. But what are your thoughts right now on the on the primaries? I mean, who? are there any candidates that you despise? And if there are, I want, I want to know why you despise them or, or what, what you have to say about them. And are there any candidates you like? You know, uh, I know people on the left tend to gravitate around Bernie Yang and Tulsi, but just speak on that. Like, what are your thoughts going into the primary? Are you hopeful?
0: Well, generally I, I I just, I, i the co-opting of uh feminism or, or whatever, you know, there are different terms for feminism into we need a first female president, it's a mistake. And it's one that I did for so long. I, I can't believe the things I used to say. And this is why I just, I you know, you, every day I ask myself, am I wrong? Because <laughs> I've been so wrong about so much in my life, not about the big things, not about blowing the arm off somebody or putting a pig in the gestation crate. But, you know, um, this this idea that we need women in power, first of all, it goes along with the idea that you need someone in power. I I mean, I don't want someone to have power over me. (laughs) And I never have, (laughs) you know. And, uh, you know, the idea that, we need nation states or we need this vast centralized government. I mean, these are unbelievable mistakes. Um, It's, it's just, uh, and so the idea that you want to take the system and put a new face on it is a mistake, especially as that system mostly oppresses the poor, which is overwhelmingly female and not white, you know, um, and you're going to keep putting it's 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 just it's such a lie, and I just can't stand lies more and more as I get older. Or I I see more and more what the lie is. Um, Mary Daly she wrote a book called Dying Gyn slash Ecology, um, and um, she was a radical feminist. She has a quote, and again I'm going to ruin it, but it's something like uh, tokenism. Um, it it doesn't advance the interests of, of, uh, of the people who need it most. Um, it, 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 it regresses us on the whole because it suppresses the revolutionary impulse. And you see that with Obama and you see it, uh, with, uh, you know, if say it, it, you see it with putting a, a woman's face on a system that fucks over women all around the world. And I, I just, it's just, it becomes this this slap in the face it's a mind fuck and i should have known this because i was born under margaret thatcher who decimated the social safety net in england and yet for most of my life i've been like we need a first woman president why 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 do, why do i you know what I, I so i just it it's depressing to me that that's what people talk about they have a little girl and they say well i want my little girl to see a first woman president it's it's liberal feminism and liberal feminism has so much of that "you go girl" thing, you know. It's so much um, uh, about about elevating these few women as representations of our supposed advancement in the world. And Andrea Dworkin, a, a radical feminist, uh, Chris Hedges uh, often references her that she believed that um, uh, that that radical feminism is about elevating. Women, those women that are hardest hit by the system, as opposed to being the first female CEO. And you see it with the weapons manufacturers. Most of them now are headed by women. Raytheon going to the the Bill Scouts. I mean, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. The gay. The, you know, putting the rainbow flag on the motherfucking CIA <laughs> the yeah. weapons manufacturers. Jesus fucking Christ. You know, and, and it's just, um, is it okay I'm beginning to curse? Of course. Is that okay? I know oh I'm yeah, I love it. It. I love it. It's okay. But I mean, it's just, uh, uh, it, it, you know, radical feminism as opposed to the kind of phoniness that goes along with that. Like, we women are in it together. We're not always in it together. You know, do all white people have to love each other? Do all men have to love each other? No. But if you're in a group that's on the out, it's like you're letting down the team. If you don't like each you don't have to like each other, okay? I mean, I wasn't fighting all this time for my right to be phony. You know, that to me is liberal feminism. Whereas radical feminism is much more about getting a woman out of a situation where she's getting pummeled every night. And what does that generally require? Is money because there aren't enough shelters. And those that do exist, uh, often they can't take families. They can't take her kids. They can't take extended families. They can't protect her possessions, which can mean the world to you. Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, for me, I, you know, it's like the old Jack Benny joke where someone puts a gun to his head and they say, "Your money or your life," and he doesn't respond. And they say, "Your money or your life," and he says, "I'm thinking." <laughs> you know, I mean, for for me, if you could to take away my sheet music, I mean that, I don't, I don't know. That that would be, I I don't know what. But you know, I mean that that would hurt. You know, you can't take that to a shelter. And you can't almost ever take animals into a woman's shelter. And so often the person says, if you leave, I'm going to shoot the dog. You know, I'm going to kill the cat um, or or worse. So, um, you know, it's just uh, what do women need? They need money. They need independence. They need control over their own life. They need access to abortion. They need control over their own bodies at, at every stage, of, you know you need. It's it's. If you don't have that, what do you have? You know, they it's. It, radical feminism deals with with those things. Then they deal with war. They deal with the butchery of war. I mean, it's not this. Let's just have a first woman president and have the fake glass ceiling break when she's, you know, when the votes come in. God damn.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is this, it's sort of the modern woke culture that we're in where it's mostly about, you know, plastering over the facade, uh, the cracks in the facade, but not actually fixing the structural problems and, and you know, l- still letting the structure itself collapse in on itself while just repairing the outside of it and making it look pretty. It's its a serious problem and it is sort of indicative of how, you know, neoliberalism seems to be this overriding ideology where you can be super woke, but also be okay with war and poverty and things like that. It it is a strange time that we live in. Um, But so I'm assuming you're not a Warren supporter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I get so depressed. Oh man, I get so depressed. And yet the gentleman who was considering voting for, I, I hope he's changed or is changing his mind. Um, he was the one who gave me that NPR interview. I mean, he's, he's a really nice guy. He took me out for lunch. Uh, and I, I, you know, he, he loves music and, uh, and, um, but he, he has a daughter. He's the one who gave me that NPR interview, which is why when you came to the show, there were all those people, you know? So, I mean, Robbie, I also ask myself, um, I mean, I want a little money. You know, I mean, am I a liar? Am I really down with the proletariat? You know, how how <laughs> how far does this equality thing go? Because there are 8 billion people. I think that when you look at how much of our labor goes to generate wealth, the vast majority of our labor, when you see how it's divided, you know, I mean, everyone could have a, a pretty good life. Stephen Hawking, when he died, said we could live lives of relative luxury if we just had a more equitable society. So it's probably not that far away, but you know, um, I mean, from, from where we are, it's not that impossible to seek. Um, but I I question myself all the time, you know, how much is ego, how much is being contrarian, you know, how much of me is a hypocrite? Do do you?
1: Oh, constantly. I mean, I think what you're describing is, um, a really healthy amount of self-reflection And, you know, just self-analysis about where you are and where your place is in this world. And I I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, on some level, we're all hypocrites. I, you know, hate Silicon Valley, but I use an iPhone. I use Google. But I, you know, continue to criticize it constantly on my podcast and whenever I have a chance to. So it's, you know, you just have to pick your battles. And sometimes you have to, you know, operate in a space that, Can arguably make you a hypocrite to make change. I mean, sometimes I, you know, it's like organizing a protest against Apple using an iPhone. You know, I'm I'm for that. You know, why not? Um, So oh yeah. (laughs) So that's that's kind of the paradigm I lean into. Um, But switching gears to what else is going on right now? What seems to be dominating most of the
0: headlines? Robbie, Robbie, just switch gears though. It's you're not the one who created and promotes and engenders planned obsolescence. You're not the motherfuckers at Apple that change <laughs> one little part or who constantly want you to get the newest thing. We don't need the newest thing. These, yeah. What we have could last our lifetime if they wanted to. You're not, you know, we're, we're just pawns in the game. Totally. I mean, th- th- of course there's personal responsibility, but, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think on on, on some level, you know, to be a purist and to live the way that you preach on on every level. I mean, you'd almost have to be a a monk that lives with nothing. I mean, that's so it's it's kind of like to participate in the process of changing things, you have to on some level participate, you know, or be part of some of this evil. It's uh, it's it's but it's something I grapple with all the time, and I think everybody probably does on some level who's involved this way. But right now it seems like you know, a lot of people like us, Nellie, are not really paying that much attention to uh, the impeachment trial, which is happening. And I tried to. I mean, I tr- again, I tried listening <laughs> to it this morning and um, I could barely uh, focus on it, keep my attention on it. I mean, it was absolutely soul-crushingly boring. And I'm just wondering, what is, what is your opinion on it? I mean, have you followed it at all? And even just on the general question of, do you want... Do you think Trump should be impeached? Um, and if you have, you know, uh, an opinion on that, I, I'm sure it's a complicated one because if he's impeached, you know, we'd have President Pence. So w- what's your take on what's going on right now? And have you been paying any, any attention to impeachment?
0: No, I've been paying no attention. My mother has, though. <laughs> <laughs> and she sits on a day Gee whiz, where did I put it? Did I put it in that? No, I have so many notebooks going I think generally uh she said that they um wait a minute, is it here? Did I write it down on a napkin? Like trickle down was explained to Reagan in a bar. Yeah, here it is. Um, that um they're they're wicked. The the more wicked people are the that they can be more the more charming. And that they're a bunch of gangsters. I don't uh yeah, I just it's just what what do you agree to, and you know what what do we agree to? I don't know, talking to you. I have mixed feelings of going to Iowa, you know, because what you know, Bernie gets in first drone strike, he launches, then that butt will be on me, right? Whatever I've done for to promote him, um, and it's never worth it. You can get whatever sixty million people health care. And you kill one, you know, you blow the legs off one kid. That's not worth it, you know. It's just, and then I so I, I guess what well, my mom was commenting on this impeachment trial. I haven't seen. She saw Rudy Giuliani, and he uh, he. It seemed like he was sounding like a gangster, I guess, to her. And he was like, "Hey, you know, he's my friend." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He was so charming. I'm just getting all this secondhand. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's 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 very confusing. With with people, because uh, people personally, it just, it all obfuscates what's actually going on. I think, getting back to our, what, what, what you were just saying about, you know, we, part- we participate on some level of the system, but we also, we live on stolen land. We consume products of yesteryear um, that are based on another's suffering um you know are, are based on the exploitation and i can go back hundreds of years and you know the, the whole you know we um when we go to the hospital i mean what is the history of medicine look at the history of gynecology you know um experiments on slaves hypothermia experiments were done on victims of the nazis there was the Tuskegee experiments here in the United States. There's all the tortures that we have put uh, animals through, and there are great books on that, like Sacred Cows and Golden Geese, written by two doctors um, that, that talk about uh, the lie of progress and um, how much was uh, being done in clinical trials without animal experiments and how that went along with the separation of scientists from patients and it it had to do with uh, hierarchy, and then it got sustained by the momentum of convention and money and there's there are whole histories I mean there are some great books um that I could, I could we could do a whole rap session just on great books, but you know it's but it's just um I mean we're living with all these ghosts. it's not just what we participate in directly, you know, but it's just. <sighs> You know, if people suffered and died, animals suffered and died for what we have, we might as well use it and then try to stop that going forward. And uh, so I I, I I, don't know how this relates to the impeachment trial. <laughs> We're all colluding in some fashion. I don't know. It's just, you know, this impeachment. Jesus. I can't believe people, they're glued to it. Not my mama. She's just watching it in passing. <laughs>
1: And your mom, we didn't talk about her, but um, just a little trivia about her is she actually starred in the films The Shining Superman 2 and Chariots of Fire, sort of people who aren't aware. And your mom's name is what, Nellie?
0: <laughs> Robin Pappas.
1: Robin Pappas, yeah. Um, and I actually, before I met Nellie, I totally remembered her role in Superman 2, because I've seen that movie probably... Over 40 times. So I was like, oh, wow, that's your mom. That's pretty cool. So your mom seems like a really cool lady and um, really glad to have you on the podcast. And just for anybody who's interested in seeing you perform live, do you have uh, any tour dates coming up uh, that you'd like to mention here? This will probably come out uh, before the 1st of February.
0: Oh, well, you're kind of. Uh, yeah, we're going to Arizona. Bakersfield, San Pedro, and uh, Vegas. We're doing a glamorous tour of Las Vegas libraries. And where you can come.
1: <laughs> I'll try to make it. Where Where should uh, people go look to find your tour dates? Is there a website that they can check?
0: Oh, sure, Rob. I feel like such a pimp. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's my name at dot com. Do you have any tour dates?
1: No, just uh, I'm just playing a couple of shows here in Oakland. It's on May 4th and um, and actually February 28th at um, in San Francisco. So just two. <laughs> That's the extent uh-huh. of my touring.
0: Yeah, do you like to travel?
1: You know, I don't. But yeah, I have uh, I have traveling PTSD, so I need to get over that before going on another tour for Fluorescent Gray. My music, for sure.
0: And is it? And I forget what you said. Did you say it's by any means, or is it mostly flying?
1: Uh, I think it's just being away from home, um, and my and my dog, my pup, uh, for too long. Um, yeah. So it's if I could bring her along with me on tour, that would definitely be a, a way to um, to cope with some of my anxiety. So maybe I'll figure that out at some point in the future. Yeah. And you tour with your your dog too, right? Or some I of the do. time,
0: and yes, yes, I, I'm not looking forward to being away from her because you can't always cross country. It just takes too long with it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but uh, no, I, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it just spending the time with them.
1: Yeah. If anyone's listening out there, go have fun with your life. Go do things you love, and uh, you know, spend time with the people that you love, and the and the cute animals you love too. It's all that stuff is really important.
0: Yeah, or even the not-so-cute.
1: Yeah, yeah, don't discriminate yeah. against not-so-cute animals either. They deserve your love, too. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nellie, for joining this episode of Media Roots Radio. Also, you have a you have a Twitter, too, so tell people where they can follow you on that.
0: Oh, it's not nearly so good as yours, but it's, uh, it's just uh, Nellie underscore Makai. Check out Robbie's.
1: <laughs> yeah, check out my Twitter too, guys. Um, well, thank you so much, Nelly. Um, let's do this again sometime. I'm looking forward to seeing you perform live again, e- either in a, the new run of a play as a poem or, or something else that you're that you're performing.
0: Oh, thank thank you. I'm gonna get my DVD player set up now. You know what I'm watching?
1: Very heavy agenda. <laughs> yeah. Put it on a marathon, binge it, and we'll and then we'll it's talk.
0: About time, yes, <laughs> yes, please
1: alright Nellie I will talk to you have soon have a good night you too thanks Robbie bye bye
0: it's quarter to three there's no one in the place except you and me so set them up Joe I got a little story you ought to know We're drinking, my friend.